This is a very, very bleak psalm. And if you um, stayed until the end of the service, I will congratulate you. <laughs> Have you ever began your prayer to God with a fierce complaint? I'm sure you do, because I do that sometimes. It happens when uh, you uh, just storm out of the house in anger, or when you receive a retrenchment notice, or the shivering news that you, you have cancer, stage four. Such kind of prayers begin with the words, why, or what is this, or what did I do, or just God, with an exclamation mark. Have you ever prayed that way? No more niceties. Away with the uh, formalities. Prayer that is, you could say, bordering on the side of irreverence. The psalm that we are looking at today shows us that you and I are not the only ones who talk to God with such nerve. When we are distressed, when we experience times of pain, when we are shocked by what's happening around us. Now this psalm, psalmist must have written this psalm sometime after the Babylonian captivity. He survived the attack and was probably left in Jerusalem along with the poor, picking up the pieces. And so he cries out to God. He registers his complaint. And he says in verse 1, Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? You see, to the psalmist, God is now the smoking shepherd who blows his anger against his sheep because the present plight of the people is a clear evidence of God's anger against his people. Yet, although he knows God is angry at them, he calls on God to remember, to remember, to remember people, to remember places. You know, when we ask people to remember, it is usually a cerebral exercise. It's to retrieve information in the recesses of our memories. But when God's people cry out to God to remember it is not a brain exercise, as if God forgets. To call upon God to remember is to solicit action. It is because God's remembering is always a prelude to God's salvific action, God's salvation action. So consider when God's people cried out to him from Egypt because of their bondage to slavery. God, we were told, heard their groaning, and God remembered. God remembered his covenant with the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God's remembering, friends, is always an overture that sets things in motion to uh, rescue God's people out of a situation. Consider, too, the barren Hannah, if you've read 1 Samuel. Hannah, who prayed to the Lord to remember her, to remember her and to look into her affliction. Why is that? Because she is afflicted that she is barren, and she is afflicted that she's being bullied 
by wife number two. So Hannah asks the Lord to remember her. And soon she conceived and bore the prophet and priest Samuel. When God's people call on God to remember, it's not a brain exercise. It is a plea for God to act. And here in this psalm, the psalmist calls on God to remember people and places. Remember, we read, remember his congregation. Remember the people he possesses, the people that he has redeemed for himself. Look at verse 2. He says, Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. So the psalmist calls on God to remember his treasured people. He also calls on God to remember his dwelling place, Mount Zion. Why remember people and place? Well, because the people at that time are gone, gone for now. They were dispersed. They were exiled into strange places. Some left exiled and some left behind, poor and abandoned. And Mount Zion? Mount Zion was in ruins. The enemy has just ransacked it, ransacked it and burned it to the ground. And so why remember people and place? Because the psalmist is now calling on God to act. Verse 3, he says, Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. So the psalmist asks God to remember in hope that he acts after seeing what has happened. And so in verses 4 to 8, he walks God through the ruins and then reports and tells the Almighty what had happened. Verse 4, he says, Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place, and they set up their own signs for signs. See, the enemy barged into the temple with a roar, overpowering sounds of praises, sounds of singing, sounds of prayers. And with that frightening roar, they looted the temple and they replaced God's holy things with their own signs. Now, their signs, commentators tell us, <clears throat> may be uh, military emblems signifying domination or signifying invasion. Or the signs that they replaced could be objects uh, in order to defile the holy place of God. Look at verse 5 and following. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatches and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, We will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. Verses 5 to 8 speak of the Babylonians and their demolition acts and their arson-thirsty acts. So the comparison that was made is that, is that if the beautiful carvings of the temple are like majestic trees in forests, the enemies are axemen. 
They are mad tree choppers, axing away all the trees in the forest. And they, they finish their destruction by torching the temple and burning it to the ground. You know, when I was growing up, I've witnessed a few fires that occurred in my neighborhood, and I've watched firemen trying for hours to put out the flames. And I would hear, overhear conversations of adults when, when they tell one another, ask one another, that, you know, if, if given a choice between the misfortune of burglary and the misfortune of arson, which would you choose? Which one? would you choose? Well, the adults say they would choose burglary. Why? Because you still have a home. You still have a house to come home to, at the very least. But fire incinerates everything, and it reduces all your remaining hopes to ashes. The psalmist calls on God to remember to remember his dwelling place, which is now but blackened remains. And it seems, too, that he calls on God to remember the enemy, for he tells God what they did. They did this, they did that. Look at verses 4 to 8. Can you move back the slide? You see the pronouns they. They profaned the place. They broke down carvings. They set up their own signs. They burned the place to the ground. Psalm says, God, remember what happened to your place and remember those who had done it. And so now that the priests are gone, now that the temple is non-existent, the psalmist laments in verse 9. He says, we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. So here in verse 9, the psalmist reveals the focus of his cry and complaint. And his focus is this. How long is this going to last? How long will the enemy triumph? How long will God be mocked? Is it going to be forever? Look at verse 10. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? And the psalmist protests, verse 11, Why do you, God, hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. He pictures God to be a nonchalant, indifferent God. You know, like one who has his arms folded, doesn't want to do anything. So he calls on him to put out his right hand. Not that God is uh, right-handed and not a lefty, but the right hand of God always symbolizes his power. So if you've read Exodus, Moses sings in his song of this right hand of God. Exodus chapter 15, Moses says, Your right hand, O Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. O Lord, it shatters the enemy. Verse, uh, verse 12 of chapter uh, 15, Exodus, You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them, swallowed the enemies. 
the right hand of God, my friends, symbolizes God's unmatched power against his enemies. So the psalmist calls on God to put out his right hand and not prolong the distress of the people and the mockery of God's name. Verse 12. Now, unlike the verses that you see on the screen, if you use a hard copy, you will notice that uh, there will be a double space. And double spaces in the book of Psalms, I do not know about how you use them, but for me, it's a cue. It's a cue for me to take a break. It's a cue for me to stand and walk around. It's a cue for me to, uh, to fix myself a cup of coffee because those double spaces signal for us a change of tone, a change of mood. Sometimes I'd like to believe that the psalmist would have taken a, a long time penning a psalm. I mean, that's what songwriters do, don't they? Lyricists, sometimes they need a retreat to just write one song. From verse 12 onwards, the psalmist changes his mood. He changes his tone. He tells God what his right hand is capable of. Look at verse 12. He says, Yet God my King is from of old, working salvation the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him food. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Did you notice the repetition of the pronoun you? You, you, you. Yes, we read a while ago in the previous section, the enemies, they did this, they did that. But from here onwards, the psalmist says, but you, God, you did this. You did that. From verse 12, from the beginning, you, God, have always been the Savior. Verse 13, you, God, Conquer the sea by dividing it, and no sea monster can win over you. And the Leviathan that nations talk about in their uh, uh, creation epic, the psalmist says, you crush the head of the Leviathan. You see, the psalmist here is using mythic language uh, for affect. He's using mythic language. Does, doesn't, doesn't mean that the psalmist believes in myths. In the same way, we Christians sometimes we would use mythic language and say it's a Herculean task or he has a Midas touch. We don't believe in Greek mythology, but we use them for affect. The psalmist uses mythology, mythic language, in order to emphasize that God has power over the, the, the Leviathan that mythic people believed in. Verse 15, You, God, open and close dams. Verse 16, you, God, turn on the lights and turn off the lights, not the house lights, but the lights of the world. Verse 17, you, God, set the thermostat. 30 degrees in summer and 9 degrees in winter. 
What is the psalmist doing here? The psalmist is telling us what God can do with his right hand. His right hand can do immeasurably more than the enemy's. And so having told God what his right hand can do, he now moves to verse 18 till the end. He cries and he says, Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. So the psalmist cries to God in verses 18 to end, and he tells him, Remember the scoffing enemies. Do not forget the poor doves, referring to God's helpless and harmless people who are now given over to the enemies, the beasts. Notice there's that word again, remember. And now it's joined by the phrase, do not forget. Remember, remember, do not forget, do not forget. In remembering two groups of people, the enemies and God's sheep, the psalmist calls on God to act against the enemies who scoff, who roar, who spread violence, and who revile God's name. The psalmist calls on God, on God to act for his sheep who are downtrodden, fed like doves to beasts, who are left poor, who are left needy. The psalmist calls on God to remember these two peoples, the enemies and the downtrodden, and to act against one and to act for the other. And you may ask, in all this, what is the psalmist's basis for getting God to remember and act? Well, it is God's name and his covenant. You see, God had covenanted that the people he rescued from Egypt will be his treasured possession, that they will be a holy nation, that they will be a kingdom of priests. But now with Jerusalem in ruins, God's name is at stake. His covenant annulled. And that is why the psalmist rouses God. Verse 22, he says, Arise, O God, and defend your cause. Why? Because your name, your covenant, hangs on the balance. That's the end of Psalm 74. What can we learn from this psalm? This is when you listen attentively. I give you three. Firstly, the fact that the psalmist spills no ink to confess the sins of the nation against God does not mean that he is ignorant of the divine reason for the nation's captivity. Although we do not see any admission of sin here, some people read this and say, the psalmist doesn't admit that they have sinned against God. Though we do not see any admission of sin here, it does not mean that the psalmist is oblivious to the guilt of Israel. 
Nor does it mean that the psalmist believes that their present plight is undeserved. Because we shall see when we get on to Psalm 79, that is, if you've survived today's Psalm 75, 76, 77, if we get to Psalm 79, the writer is going to plead God to remember their iniquities no more and to hasten compassion, grant them compassion quickly. And so the psalmist knows that sin earned the nation their present plight. The psalmist knows that they have committed the breach of the covenant because the psalmist knows for a fact that God is angry. That is why he begins his prayer by asking, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against your sheep? He is aware that God is angry. And God, unlike fickle idols of nation, God is always constantly and consistently angry at sin. And so the psalmist's question is not why God is angry. His question, rather, is the duration of God's anger. How long will God continue to be angry at his sheep? How long? And do nothing about their misery. So the psalmist's focus here is to complain God's inaction against the enemies. He is complaining God folding his arms and doing nothing. He is complaining that the temple is looted and destroyed. He is complaining that the Lord's name is being reviled. He is complaining that the sheep of God's pasture are like harmless doves being delivered to wild beasts. That is the focus of the psalmist in this psalm. Not confession, but crying out to God for action, airing his complaints to God. And so first lesson, slide comes up. It is far better to direct your complaints to God than to bring it elsewhere. It's far better to tell God your complaints, far better than to mutter under your breath. It's far better than to tell it to others or post it online and get backlash. We already learned from Psalm 73 that Asaph, the psalmist Asaph, he was tempted to air his complaints to the people, and yet he held his tongue and directed his complaint to God. It is far better to direct your complaints to God than to bring it elsewhere. Why? Because in so doing, you know what? You are escalating the issue to the highest authority. Now, sometimes you may have complaints on something. You take a picture and you submit it to a certain governing body, but turns out that body isn't powerful enough to address your complaint. If you address your complaint to God, you are escalating it to the highest governing authority. The one who is king from eternity past. The one who chopped off the heads of the sea monster. The one whose fingers turn on the tap and turn off the tap. The one whose breath evaporated rivers and streams. It is far better 
for you to bring your complaints to God, your pain, your questions to Him and get sometimes no quick answers, sometimes no answers, no audible answers. Yet it is better to bring them all to God because God hears them all. God hears them all. You, will, you may ask Him to remember someone. You may ask Him to remember some place. You may ask Him to remember you. Because when you tell God to remember, it triggers a response from Him. And so it is better to direct your complaints to God than to bring it elsewhere. Secondly, you read this psalm and you ask, is God angry at His people? Yes, He is angry. The psalmist believes so. Why? Because the prolonged suffering with no relief in sight suggests that, yes, God is angry. Yet, it can only be a suggestion. Why? Because we know that God's anger, it lasts only for a moment. Were to God extend his anger further, his people would have been completely wiped off. Were to God extend his anger further, you and I will be obliterated from the face of the earth. And so though the psalmist suspects that God is still angry, his psalm teaches us that we nevertheless approach him, even if we think that he is angry. The psalm teaches us that the basis for which we come to God is not, never is, our worthiness. The only basis for which we come to God is because of His grace. And so His people can cry out to God, complain to Him even, tell Him to arise even as they suppose that He could be angry at them. Why? Because sheep still belong to their shepherd, even if their shepherd is smoking in anger. Next slide. Nightbird, she understood this better than me. You know her. She's the golden buzzer star of America's Got Talent. Her song and her voice captivated audience around the world. And her story moved hearts because when she sang in America's Got Talent, she was dying from cancer. Nightbird, she knew that God will listen to a downtrodden even if he is angry at him or at her. Why do I say that? Well, Nightbird wrote in her blog, and let me quote, she writes, I have had cancer three times now, and I have barely passed 30, 30 years old. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God, that he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll say I just never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He can never say he did not know me. Why? I am God's downstairs neighbor. 
banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I salt outside until he opens the door to me himself. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I knew it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us. And I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. End of quote. Nightbird feared that she had offended God. That's why she was stricken with cancer. But that, that did not stop her from hitting God's floor with a big stick because she knows that she is among the friends of God. She is certain, she is sure that she is chosen, blessed, and sought after. She is his ship, sheep still, even if she has offended the shepherd. And so sheep still belong to the shepherd, even if the shepherd is angry. Remember that. You and I approach God not because we are clean, not because we are worthy, not because we are flawless. You and I get a hearing from God because of who He is. He is our shepherd. He is full of grace. And so even when we think we have angered Him, never tell yourself that God will not listen to me because I am so wretched. Never say, I have, I have need to fix my life first before I can be worthy to come to Him. No, friend. You come to Him just as you are. As one him puts it, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, just as I am, come, I come. Finally, Psalm 74 is one psalm that seems to offer no comfort. Because at the time it was written, the writer sees no signs. He hears no prophecy to uh, provide him some assurance that relief is coming. Perhaps he and his people had not heard the prophet Jeremiah's assurance of the Lord's plan. You know, you know Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah 29, 11, a favorite Bible verse of many people. The psalmist and the people probably has yet to hear that. The Lord's plan to give them a future. The Lord's plan to give them a hope, the Lord's plan to restore their fortunes and gather all the exiles back once the 70 years are completed for Babylon. The psalmist might not have known that at that time, but we do today. And we too have God's word whenever we have questions about our suffering. We have an assuring word in Jesus. So Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, which was just read for us, a portion of which was just read for us a while ago. 
something that you and I need to read once in a while. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, which means this was the experience of God's people, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul tells us, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ or love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have an assuring word in Jesus, friends. We have the assurance of God's steadfast and enduring love, even if our circumstances suggest that he could have folded his arms. Even if our circumstances show us, seems to show us that he is the smoking shepherd, smoking anger on his sheep, because Jesus has saved us from God's wrath, and nothing shall separate us from God's love. We have an assuring word in Jesus. And then we have another assurance from the revelation of Jesus. How long? How long before God will judge and avenge the blood of those slain because of the gospel, because of Jesus? Jesus' reply, a little longer. A little longer. Because the certainty of God triumphing over evil shall come. The certainty of God crushing all enemies of the gospel shall occur in the end. And then the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants shall see him face to face. There will be no more night. There will be no need of light. Light from a lamp or light of the sun because the glory of God will be its light and they shall reign forever and ever in the new Jerusalem. Revelation 22. We have an assuring word in Jesus because Jesus conquered sin and death and shall return to make all things new. Until then, you and I can continue to long for that great day. And yet, we do not long with uncertainty like the psalmist. We long with conviction, with certainty, because the words of Jesus are trustworthy and true. And so we long with eagerness and say, Come, Lord Jesus. So, friends, when you are in distress, bring your complaints to God. He is the shepherd who will not turn away from you. 
He is the shepherd who will not disown his sheep. And when you do not seem to find an answer, look to the assuring sign that we have in Jesus. And be assured that while we wait his glorious appearing, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we do not like this psalm. We do not like the bleakness of it. And yet we give thanks that this is your word. And you have taught us through the psalm that you are a God who leans his ear unto his sheep. You may be angry at us because of sin, but we give thanks that because of Jesus, we are saved from your wrath. And so may we always turn to you in the difficulties of life. May we direct our complaints to you because you are the highest authority who is in charge of all things. And while we long for the coming, the return of your Son, when he will make all things new, help us to long with certainty, with conviction. Surely Jesus will come and he will make all things new. We praise you. We have hope in you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.